turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If this is the first time you've heard the show, welcome. Glad to have you with us. And Happy New Year to one and all, whether you've heard the show or not. Now, again, if you have heard the show, you know the show is in a couple of parts. The first part, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, that's avoiding probate, which right now in the current situation with COVID, it's very important to avoid probate. And if you have any questions about that, you can always give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And as far as elder law is concerned, we're trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Today we have my wife Beth, who'll be on in a little while, and my son Michael. Hello, everyone. And we have one of the attorneys from our office, uh, Ishmael Jose, and welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Glad okay. to be here again. Now, your name may fool some people, but where are you from <laughs> originally? We call you Mel in the, in the office. I, it's, it's, it's confusing. I've had a lot of close things where they... they, they bring up this name's confusion about my first name and last name. I'm from the Philippines. I'm a Filipino. I've been a lawyer there for 10 years, and then five years here in, in Connerton Sullivan. So. Well, what, what are the differences between the law in the Philippines and, and the law in the U.S.? There's a, there's a lot, but th- there was some point where Supreme Court decisions in the Philippines are appealed all the way to the United States Supreme Court. So we have a hybrid uh, legal system, um, but let me talk about real estate. There's that big difference because here we use title insurance a lot. And in the Philippines, we use a torrent system of land registration. So we don't do title title companies over there, but we rely on the government to issue tran- transfer certificates of title. So there's that. And by the way, some people may not, not know this, but in Brooklyn, in certain parts of Brooklyn, we had the torrent systems. I forget when it changed At over, point, but it's yeah. about 20 years ago or so, we had the torrent system in, in Brooklyn. In certain parts of Brooklyn, usually the areas that were descended from the Dutch settlements where the land descended from the Dutch settlements. And with the torrent system, what was important, you'd had to have the physical copy of the deed, original copy original. of the deed, to transfer a title. Otherwise, you need to get a court order. Right now, with the system we have in place, basically, your deed's recorded with the city register. 
They take a picture of it. You get the original back. And if you lose your original deed, it, it's no big deal. The deed is recorded with the city. And you can go online and see a copy of your deed. People come into my office all the time upset. I lost my original deed. What am I going to do? Well, really, it's not a big problem anymore. If you have a copy of your deed, you go online. And, you know, it's it's listen, even I can do it. It's that simple. And I'm very bad online. But you go on ACRIS, ACRIS, you go on there, you put in your address, and eventually you get a copy of your deed. And, you, you know, some people are astounded, you know, when we can get a copy of their deed in a couple of minutes. And, you know, the other side of the coin is that your neighbor also can get a copy of your deed. The guy down the street can get a copy of your deed. The real estate speculator can get a copy of your deed. So there's no privacy in who owns your house. And that has some you know, aspects as far as estate planning and elder law go. But again, your original deed really does need, not need mean that much in New York City. So, you know, you're talking about the the difference between real estate and, and now, if you're in the Philippines, it's, it's hard to own real estate in the Philippines if you're not a, uh, a Filipino citizen. Correct. Right? There, there are very limited situations where a foreigner could own. And that would be really just if you're a former natural-born citizen, you lost your citizenship because you were naturalized in a foreign country. That is an exception. But other than that, you know, foreigners are not really allowed to own real property in the Philippines. Okay. Now, Mel, you have a question, I think, from uh, the audience, I one think, of our email questions. Yes. I think this is a very important question that we encounter far too often as far as Medicaid planning is concerned. And this is the question. My father is in a serious need of nursing home care. However, his pension income is too high for Medicaid, but too low for nursing home costs. Is there anything our family can do? Well, yeah, you know that, and that's one of the myths that go around. I can never go on income uh, Medicaid because my income's too high. Believe me, you can go on Medicaid no matter what your income is. Now, your assets, we have to figure out what we're doing to. But income by itself is usually not a problem as far as Medicaid is concerned. If you go for home care Medicaid, let's say your income is five thousand dollars a month. You go on home care Medicaid. Now I'm simplifying the numbers, but basically, you put about four thousand dollars a month in a pooled income trust. That $4,000 a month has to be paid to pay your bills, your rent, your mortgage, real estate taxes, insurance, uh, food, clothing, could be paying for car payments or whatever. But that money gets used to pay for your car payments and through the pooled income trust, and then you're eligible for Medicaid. Now, very rarely have we had a problem spending the money. Now, sometimes people come in, well, my father's got a $6,000 a month pension. We can't spend all that. But, you know, I think if you really work on it, you can spend it. You can use it to prepay a funeral. You can, again, if you own a house, and the house better be in the trust if we're applying for Medicaid, you can pay the real estate taxes, the insurance, fuel bills. You can pay the the, the food bills. You can pay cable, electric, um, you know, the miscellaneous expenses, you know, your cell phone. And again, you're a little short. You buy a car. You make car payments. You buy a funeral on installment plans and, and pay that off. Usually there's a way if we sit down, we can spend that five, $6,000 a month. If you've got $2,000 a month, it's very easy. We put $1,000 in the pooled income trust and use the $1,000 to either pay your rent or, or pay the expenses on your house. Almost any house is going to cost more than $1,000 a month to run. So uh, again, your income is never a problem as far as, you know, home care Medicaid is concerned. Now, nursing home Medicaid, you still can get Medicaid, but let's say you're medical expenses, the nursing home bill is more than your income. Well, if you're married, you might be able to 
have your spouse put a claim in to get her or his income up to at least 3000 a month. If you're not married, yeah, most of your income is going to go to the nursing home, but you still can be eligible for Medicaid. So let's say you have a $15,000 a month nursing home bill. You have $5,000 a month income. You're not married. You don't have a spouse. You can be eligible for Medicaid, but you do have to pay that $5,000 a month income to the nursing home. But then, depending on what your other assets are, we can figure out a way to get you on Medicaid as a certain period of time. So no matter what your circumstances, we usually can get you on Medicaid within a period of time. Yeah, if you're a millionaire and you have millions of dollars worth of assets, it may take five years. But the average person in the middle class, especially if they're married, we can get the Medicaid literally in a few months. So uh, don't listen to just you know, rumors that go around, you know, and, and the thing is the laws I'm talking about are New York state. So in some states, I understand there is a problem, but even then in those states, I think you're allowed to do some kind of income, an equivalent of a pooled income trust and be able to, uh, to get Medicaid. Now, Mel, I got a question for you and it has to do with, uh, our next guest on the show. What is the rule as far as gun control and self-defense in the Philippines? Oh, I heard that. Um, you're only allowed to own gun if you are a person occupying uh, a position in government, or if you're a lawyer, <laughs> if you're a businessman. This, this, in other words, this this risk to your lifestyle. So, but self-defense, if you're defending yourself, defending your loved one, or even a stranger, if you've witnessed a crime being done against that person in your presence, you're you're allowed if you act on the impact your impulse in your you know good faith effort to save that person or to defend yourself, you're actually supposed to be exempted from any liability. Yeah, now criminals, do they have weapons in the Philippines? They don't have to, but yeah, they do. Well, they do, yeah, but <laughs> does the gun control help on that? It doesn't. All right. It doesn't. All right, because later in the show, we're going to be talking uh, about gun control with one of our you know buddies from the London Center for Policy Research. You know, Tim Wilson has been on the show a few times We've in past Shows we have talked about gun control, self-defense, um, how to survive a nuclear bomb, uh, you know. But but Tim, you know, has been all over the world. He's been in the, the British military the uh, for you know thirty some odd years, and he's been all over the world, and he's seen everything and knows everything as far as I'm concerned. And we're going to be talking about a, a range of different issues, you know, gun control, self-defense. Election fraud, the London Center is investigating election fraud right now, and it may not be good enough for this election or whatever, but as far as the future, they're trying to make policy decisions. And it's a great place, the London Center. We had the, the honor of knowing uh, Herb London a little bit. In fact, one time he was at our house, and he was gracious enough when we had our uh, fundraiser for the John Wayne Cancer Institute. He came over to, uh, for the John Wayne Cancer Institute, he came over to... Uh, to say hello for that. So a great man, Herb London. Sadly, he's gone now a couple of years, but his legend, his work lives on through the London Center for Policy Research, and we're going to be talking to one of their fellows, Lieutenant Colonel Timothy Wilson. That's very interesting. Everyone, please listen. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? 
These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646 or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you you're going to get a question answered from none other than Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan, the number one uh, estate care and elder law firm in the uh, tri-state area, Uh, people that I have uh, long relied upon for the proper advice on end-of-life planning. And, uh, Mike, this week's question comes from Margot. She says, Dear Mr. Connors, my husband and I have been married for three years, and I have, and now we have a one-year-old daughter. We're in our early 30s. We don't own a home yet or have any other significant assets. My neighbor told us that we should think about appointing a guardian for our daughter. Is that something we need to do? And if so, the best way to go about this. Mike Connors, what do you say? Well, yeah, there's no question you should have a, a guardian appointed because you never know if something's going to happen to both of you. Or even, you know, if something happens to one of you and there's a lawsuit, you know, obviously the people are young. If something happens to one of them and there's a lawsuit, well, we want a guardian for the for the child. Now, you can appoint a guardian either through most people appoint a guardian through a will. In theory, you can appoint a guardian through a deed. I've never really seen it done, but according to law, you can write a deed and say, I appoint so-and-so to be a guardian of my child. But in any event, you should have a guardian appointed because, you know, you don't want to make a bad situation worse where the the child becomes a, a ward of the courts, in effect, and is being bounced around through the court system. 
Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And, friends, if you've got questions about just how to go about doing that, uh, please give Connors and Sullivan a call, 718-238-6500. No one will take more time with you and care more about uh, the needs of the, of the questions that you have than Connors and Sullivan. They're simply the very best at what they do. And you can submit more questions. Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com. He'll answer one every week here on Kevin McCullough Radio. But he'll also check and answer your questions Saturday mornings beginning at 8 o'clock on AM 570 and FM 102.3, The Mission, WMCA, and Sunday mornings starting at 11 o'clock on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, Happy New Year, and thanks so much. Happy New Year, Kevin. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. But even though I'm kind of comfortable... I sometimes wonder, is there something more? Could God in church be what you're looking for? Come and see at CatholicsComeHome.com. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, in our Connor's Corner segment. And right now we have one of our favorite guests, Tim Wilson from the London Center for Policy Research. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you very much, Michael, and Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. Well, thank you. I think the first two things which you cover, what is the London Center for Policy Research, and and who's Tim Wilson? Um, The London Center for Policy Research is a think tank set up by um, Dr. Herb London of New York City. Herb was a, uh, uh, um, who sadly died a couple of years ago, was a real um, powerhouse of a mind and a really decent man who was desperately concerned about all sorts of issues. Um, He uh, set up the center and pulled in as many original thinkers as he can for a policy tank that is focused mainly on foreign policy um, and in a, a... uh, a methodology in which we actually try and achieve results. In other words, we don't just sit and think and produce papers on also esoteric matters. We look at facts as far as we can and then try and produce policies and get them into the hands of people that matter with those facts in a way that then they can actually act on and make sensible decisions rather than get up the seat of the pants or emotional decisions on how to handle as I say, particularly foreign policy, and I mean, the thing that Herb was rightly proudest of is that over 10 years ago, he wrote a paper about how peace might be spread in the Middle East. And the Abram Accords are one of the results of his type of thinking. Um, so that's the London Centre, which nowadays is, is focused on all sorts of issues, domestic as well as foreign. Um, and I'm one of the senior fellows at the London Centre for Policy Research. Um, and my particular focus is on um, factual data gathering. Um, my background is that I'm a retired British Army officer. I moved here in uh, 16 years ago now and married the lady that I moved for and ah. took American citizenship quite proudly. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and... 
I've been pro-American all my life. I came here as a small boy, and my first school was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I, even through my British military career, I always said that I learned the Pledge of Allegiance before I learned God Save the Queen. All right. Well, very good. Now, I, I was looking around, and you guys have a challenge about election fraud on your website. Can you can you explain that to us? Yeah. Um, obviously, there has been an awful lot of interest in what has gone on, and there have been all sorts of denials. But when Chris Krebs, the former um, head of the government uh, cyber agency, actually said that this was the most secure election in American history, that dismayed me no end. It dismayed all of us. Um, I'd like to remind people that it's 10 years, more than 10 years ago now, that famously America attacked Iran with the Stuxnet virus. And we actually managed to destroy a number of Iranian uranium enrichment centrifuges, which were mechanical devices and not connected to the Internet. But we did it using an Internet virus called Stuxnet. Um, that is just one example of things that can happen by Internet cyber um, events, shall we say. If you think as well about how industry and commerce and every government agency has recently, um, the solar winds event has been major. Um, people still are looking into and discovering the ramifications of that. But the bottom line is that um, cyber warfare and cyber attacks are capable of getting into just about any system. And if you think about the precautions that we all take now to protect our own bank accounts and our own internet accounts and our, our identities, identity theft is now a common cry. Why on earth would anybody think that um, electronic machinery of any sort can be truly secure? So we put out this internet, this challenge on the internet to say to uh, to challenge that statement, particularly by Chris Krebs, that the election was the most secure in history. It wasn't. It can't have been. The American government and um, states only spend a relatively small amount on their voting systems. Um, they are old systems. They're based on old software. If you look into the history of what types of software they use, they are not modern the late they're not the cutting edge let's put it like that and we don't have live monitoring of every election machine so for sure they are vulnerable now the challenge that we put out therefore was to say to people explain to us in what way you believe this really could have been a secure election we are of the mind as a group uh, that the evidence is strong that there was some form of election interference went on through the voting machines and that therefore it needs to be thoroughly investigated and and quite frankly a review done that's of the entire voting system suggesting my own personal suggest belief is that we should go back to purely paper systems do you guys have any evidence of of fraud we do, yes. One of our one of our um, senior fellows is actually uh, in the industry, and we a number of us have experience of uh, cyber warfare, and we've examined the data, and there is clear evidence um, that how should we put it? The results are not trustworthy. Um, quite simply, there are um, 
two, th three levels involved in the voting systems. The first level is the actual voting machines that people get to touch and are in the precincts. Um, that one has been demonstrated just recently um, live during the Georgia election being hacked, even though supposedly their machines are not connected to the Internet. Um, there was a, a, an expert who, in front of the Georgia senator, live hacked into a voting machine during the Georgia elections. So that's level one. Level two is the reporting systems of the results. And the bottom line is, if you think about votes, they're, they're in some ways, they're very, it's a very simple thing. Um, votes should be uh, tallied, and then a number is produced of the votes for each candidate. And those votes can only ever be increased by addition. There should never be negatives. Well, at the second level, which is the level that was put out um, through to the public through uh, the New York Times uh, as kind of one of the pivots using um, one of the systems, an analysis of that data shows that in most states, at some stage, there were negative numbers of votes for both candidates. But that negative number, where the number of votes for a candidate drops, is an immediate huge red flag to anybody that understands um, IT. It's, it just should not happen. And the fact that it did, and not in one or two occasions, but in multiple, multiple, multiple occasions in many states, is a real red flag to say there is some significant sign there of interference with the electronic voting system. Now, in the present state of affairs, what can be done about it and who will do anything about it? Um, the politics are, th there is a Chinese curse that we live in interesting times. Um, what can be done and what should be done and what will be done are kind of three different matters, and politics being politics. Um, it, it is truly interesting times that we live in. I don't know where it's going to go. I'm not going to predict or forecast. I, all I, what I state categorically is that there needs to be a really serious review of the entire thing. And my personal view is that the entire system uh, voting, the entire electoral vote this time around is invalid, which is a deep concern because it means that no elected member can actually claim to have the mandate of the people until this has been researched and fully and openly explained. All right, now let's shift subjects. We, you and I have talked a lot about the, the Second Amendment. And, and as someone who was, you know, in the United Kingdom for quite a while, or at least subject to the United Kingdom, what, in your mind, is the importance of the Second Amendment as far as the 21st century? Um, the major, major thing, as far as I'm concerned, is that um, two free, of the two free countries that I have been a citizen of, American is the freer. And when it comes to defending oneself, um, the Second Amendment is, to me, hugely important in that, in that it provides me the ability to protect myself against any aggressor, no matter how big, how strong, um, how cowardly or any or aggressive they get and um i because of that and because of the fact i was in the military for over 30 years no guns small arms in particular very well uh, i did i and i've done a huge amount of research 
And it dismayed me. Uh, back in the 80s, I was in Britain. I had a small collection of guns, and I had to sell it and get rid of it because um, the emotions following a single school shooting led to, in my mind, what obviously then did occur, which was laws banning the private possession of firearms, particularly handguns. Um, it upsets me because violent crime in Britain has risen since then. Um, and is a significant threat to many people. And if you look at, uh, in particular, um, the, the, the less able, the, the weaker, the minorities, the poor people, they are the ones that are most at threat of street crime, violent crime of all sorts, and they are the ones that are least able to protect themselves. And gun control, pretty much of any sort, limits their ability to protect themselves even if they're, if they're law-abiding. Meanwhile, the criminals in Britain, as well as in America, have huge numbers of guns, and I do mean huge. Um, there are assessments in Britain that uh, the military and police between them have maybe two to three million firearms, and the criminals have five to eight million firearms. So the chances of being attacked by a criminal with a gun in Britain are quite high, and the chances of being able to defend yourself are very low. And the police, of course... It's, it's unfair in many ways. They do a wonderful job. And, you know, the British Bobby being mostly unarmed was a very famous, you know, and good thing. But times have changed. And um, when, when seconds count, the police are minutes away, sadly. That's a reality. It's also a reality that here in the States, the police do not have an obligation to protect you as an individual. People don't understand that, but that's been laid down and tried to. No, that's times, common law, yes. Cool. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you know, self-defense is even more important. And if you look at the data across America, it is very clear that the places with the most gun control have the most gun violence. Well, let me ask you something about that. You know, a lot of times when I hear politicians, especially from, you know, let's say here in New York, it seems like they feel that the only reason there's a Second Amendment is to protect the rights of hunters, not for self-defense. Um, well, all I'd say to that is that if you study the Constitution and constitutional history, the Founding Fathers and the things like the Federalist, the Federalist Papers back from the days when they were discussing in detail, as 20-something-year-olds in the main, by the way, I would point out these were young men. Um, who were remarkable in their breadth and depth of perception of what was really needed for a free country. Um, many of them supported the Second Amendment not as a self-defense weapon or not as a hunting weapon, but as, as a means of ensuring that the government did not exert overmuch control on them. So I'm not advocating armed insurrection by any means, but the freedom that the American people have under the Second Amendment to hold firearms for their own protection, whether that be from overreach by the government or from violent criminals or from uh, rampaging bears running through the neighborhood, um, is, is unique in the world and truly a huge asset. So in other words, you wouldn't agree with, let's say, Governor Cuomo that says there's no reason why anybody should have an AR-15. No, I would not agree with him. 
Um, again, back in the day, the the uh, the Pennsylvania rifle, for example, was one of the most advanced firearms in the world and um, state of the art. And yet individuals were allowed to have that. No, I, I, law abiding. This country, America, is hugely law abiding. The vast majority over 50 percent of the police in this country will never fire their firearm in anger, if I can put it that way. Um, and. Because we are a law-abiding, peaceful nation, um, the ability to carry weapons is not a threat the way that people like Andrew Cuomo regard it. Um, in fact, it, 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 it gets you ever more interesting the more detail you get into. Um, the, the, because law-abiding citizens are not a threat, however, I would just say, so why do you need to restrict what type of firearm they have? Um, the The... Okay, I can accept the argument that no civilian needs a fully automatic capability, i.e. an assault weapon. However, to have uh, bans that constantly degrade the ability of, of citizens who perhaps are ex-servicemen who got very used to an AR-15 while they were in service, and to stop them from having that style of weapon, even though it's been adapted only to fire semi-automatic, not fully automatic, um, is just insane because it's something that because they're familiar with it, they are safer with it. Now, I think it, just to refresh to the audience, the, the AR-15 is very close to the M-16 that a lot of us learned to handle, you know, in our time in the military in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and it's very similar to the modern M4. Um, and it, as I say, if if millions of people serve in the military and become familiar with such a style of weapon, then when they go hunting or for their own protection, they perhaps want to have a weapon that they are familiar with because they are safer with it. They know the dangers and they understand how to use it safely. And restrictions on things like flash suppressors or pistol grips, pistol grips make the gun more accurate. Do we really want to, to take our rifles and make them less accurate? Is that safer in some way? Or is it about the people that have them? And if it is about the people that have them, then my question to Andrew Cuomo is, what, does your, what do your restrictions do to stop criminals getting such weapons? Well, here's one of the things I, I think we've lost in this country, a, a lot of the debate about whether you're able to defend yourself. Is, is there a right for self-defense in the U.S. right now? Well, there is a. Funnily enough, that's one way you're the lawyer, and I, I would ask you, um, in legal terms, whether there is or not. It seems to me it's very much a basic human right, and of course the the opening um, saying of of the uh, basically the the cry of life, liberty, and happiness, um, all of which would be uh, denied by being violently assaulted by anybody. Um, so, yes, there is a natural human right. That genuinely is one that is basic to all of us to protect and defend ourselves, our loved ones and our communities. Is, am I wrong? No. But what about Missouri? Um, uh, yeah, exactly. And that, that's what makes the case of the McCloskeys in particular so absolutely key to what is going on. I cannot imagine what the prosecutor is thinking of there if any of us had through two three four five hundred people coming towards us 
of demonstrated previous violent history, screaming insults and threats as they broke down a gate to come into towards our property. I think that displaying a firearm to say, I'm not going to let you just rampage through my house, hurt my, myself or my wife and destroy my house would be perfectly acceptable, especially as the McCloskeys didn't fire around. So basically two armed people by displaying their weapons potentially stopped serious crime, murder, uh, arson, and who knows what else. And the prosecutor who's actually aggressively going after them for doing that, I don't know what to suggest. Again, I would ask the lawyer, what should be done about a guy like that? <laughs> well, he should be impeached. But how did he get elected? Do you guys know? Um, not for sure. I mean, there are all sorts of rumors about uh, a variety of things. But what is obvious is that the political nature of his appointment means that he is trying to pander an appeal to um, a segment of society that is not peace-loving, willing to peaceably assemble, but, but he's trying to pander to the troublemakers and the criminals. But when, when, when in any period of time... Has it become illegal to defend your property, defend your life? Well, apparently, well, apparently within the last year or so, um, as these strange, um, very radical prosecutors, more and more, it's been going on for some time. One has to ask the question. The media must carry much of the blame, I think. They've sensationalized so much, and their their drive for you know from what used to be a, a weekly news cycle in the days of newspapers down to a daily news cycle in the days of TV to the, to the almost minute-by-minute minute news cycle of the Internet has led to this drive and desire for sensationalism. And when, when news reports that there has been an incident of violence of some sort, whether that be the Las Vegas shooting or... Um, the horrible school shootings that have gone on or Virginia Tech or whatever, they they don't just report the news. They then have to fill in the gaps. And very often what they've now done is they've gone to these analysts. And these analysts, without waiting for the facts, the investigation or anything else, take what they can see on TV and sensationalize that. Um, and I think there's a huge amount of blame there. I, I'm thinking back in particular to uh, the Florida shooting um, and, um, oh, what was his name? Um, Zimmerman. Right. George Zimmerman. Um, where the facts of the matter after the event, it slowly came out, were that um, he had had, he, before he shot the guy, he had been knocked to the ground and had his head battered on the ground. And at that stage, with the other guy on top of him, he then shoots him. That seems like reasonable self-defense to me, too. I'm not going to just lie there and let somebody batter me. I'm going to take some action to defend myself. But because the reporting had all set it up that George Zimmerman was a white supremacist racist, and that was the uh, media trope of the hour, um, it got out of hand, in my view. So what I'm calling for is basically for the media to stop trying to judge crimes on the evidence of the first five minutes of video they get 
and to fit their own narratives. It's time that people started just stepping back and saying, hang on, give the law a chance. Well, Zimmerman was hurt by the fact of the personality of, of Mr. Zimmerman, but that really has nothing to do with the fact that happened at the time that he felt he was in danger, or even, you know, listen, you can defend yourself from physical harm, not necessarily just from death. Absolutely. And you're, you're exactly right. I mean, what has his personality got to do with it? It doesn't matter if the most obnoxious person in the world still has a right to defend themselves from violence. Um, and it's a sad call on society that we're seeing this more and more, um, if you like, violence being offered towards those who have a different opinion. Uh, I, I, you know, it's always it's not fun having a, an extreme argument with somebody, but you always have the choice, as you have, for example, with television, to turn the thing off and walk away. If somebody you you disagree with vehemently. Um, is saying things that you find unacceptable, stop listening. Um, straightforward. Go away. Leave them alone. Ignore them from then onwards. You know, it used to be many, many years ago. Um, it still happens occasionally in some places, but shunning was a popular punishment <laughs> amongst some religious sects. Now, shunning was picked because it was, and we're talking about Nero when hanging, drawing, and quartering was the legal punishment. But for a society to shun somebody really is extremely hurtful to the individual. And you have to wonder how much of the current uh, events occur because people are looking for a reaction. The best reaction you can have, in my view, is stop and think. Well, let me ask you something. Right now, I think the police are to the point where they're not allowed to defend their lives. Yeah, there have been some unfortunate you know, cases of, of, you know, the police going too far. But, yep. you know, some people will compare Floyd with Ferguson as it's an equal event. All I can say is that those people have not looked into the facts of the cases and they have not looked into the history of what's been going on. And they already have preconceived notions which they're unwilling to have challenged. Um I mean, even Floyd, we still don't know for sure because it hasn't been properly made public. What did he actually die of? I, I, you know, the, from what was found of his blood sample and from what I can see, it may well be that he died of a fentanyl overdose. Um, that changes the, the entire narrative, doesn't it? Yes. Um, so, you know, blaming the police for that? And I'm not saying the police are perfect. Of course, there are bad police. There are bad members in every sector of society. But in the main, the vast majority of our police are wonderful and do a fantastic job. They are public servants of the highest order and the greatest gallantry. What other job is there that is so low paid where these guys go out knowing day after day that they face mortal threat? just in doing their jobs. They go to help the community, but they end up having to deal with some of the worst of the community. And it's not safe and it's not easy. And they have to make decisions in split seconds. So they, I think they do an amazingly good job. I Listen, I, you can't say more about it. And, you know, I think maybe this is a time where we should wrap up. We're running out of time. But 
Again, mm-hmm. where does somebody learn about the London Center for Policy Research? Thank you. Um, we are at London, londoncenter.org, and we also have a YouTube channel now. We're doing a podcast series called Thought to Action. So you can go to YouTube and search for Thought to Action. You'll find various um, video podcasts of us discussing a number of issues. Um, but the main one is londoncenter.org. And I'd be really grateful if people would go and have a look and look at what we write and uh, perhaps um, help us out by spreading it on social media. We are also on Twitter at at the LCPR. Um, And as I say, people are very welcome to come along and have a look at what we do. Can you repeat that YouTube? Yes. Um, The YouTube is uh, Thought to Action. Um, we also have a Patreon channel called patreon.com slash thought to action in which you can subscribe and get all of our um, podcasts live, you know, early, as it were. Tim Wilson, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts at Connor's Corner. We always love having you on. I guess in a couple of months we'll try again, maybe the new issue at the time. I look forward to it, Michael. Thank you very much indeed. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome back again to Ask the Lawyer. Listen, we've, you know, obviously we've had a tough week. The conversation with Tim Wilson was taped before a lot of the events of this past week have happened. I mean, it would have been nice to get his opinions as a security expert on a lot of the stuff that we've seen this past week, but we'll probably have him back in a few weeks, see how, you know, the fallout from storming the Capitol and all this other stuff. Uh has wrapped itself up, you know, past the inauguration, etc. Um, but yeah, everything that we taped with him and talked with him about was from before. As enlightening as it was, it was from before the majority of the news items from this week happened. Okay, now, again, this show a lot of times is about estate planning and elder law. And Michael, where can somebody email us a question? And two, where can they catch our seminar? Well, okay, so those are two separate things. The email questions you can hit us with at ask at AskMikeConnors at gmail.com. That's AskMikeConnors at gmail.com. Connors, of course, spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. You can also send us questions about the Civil War Roundtable or estate planning, what have you. We'll try to get back to you in a reasonable time frame, and you might hear your questions on the air. Now, as for seminars, um, if you want to find our seminars online, all you have to do is go to YouTube.com and search for Connors and Sullivan video seminar that's connors and sullivan video seminar and you'll find a full-length video it's about an hour and eight minutes and it'll be dead running through a lot of different points that you might be interested in hearing about and learning more about estate planning etc it might be it might spark you to schedule a consultation who knows but in any event it's there for your learning at your leisure on the internet youtube.com connors and sullivan video seminar in the search term and if again, if you want to join us for the Civil War Roundtable, we have last week's guest, General Sedgwell, talking about Robert E. Lee. A little controversial. Those of you who uh, 
you know, put Robert E. Lee up in the pantheon right there. You you may not be, uh, you may not like his talk, but it's interesting. And, you know, at least we can debate political yep. subjects from 150 plus years yep. ago. So that'll be this coming Wednesday. If you want to, just you can email info at connorsandsullivan.com as well. You can also call our office, 718-238-6500. We'll make sure we set you up with a Zoom link because, I mean, it should be one heck of a talk, and we would love to have you join us. I think it's going to be one of the best talks that we've had in a long time. Absolutely. And we've had good speakers, don't get me wrong. Now, some of you may notice we did not play a John Wayne Cancer Institute commercial this weekend. Uh, Beth, will you explain why? Oh, my goodness. Quickly. January 1st. Um... All of a sudden, the Wayne family found out that St. John's Hospital would no longer be calling the research center the John Wayne Cancer Institute Research Center, which uh, the family was taken aback. Um, of course, this is political correctness, cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, run amok. So um, for those of uh, many of our clients have left um, money for the research for the John Wayne cancer research, but, um, don't worry. The John Wayne foundation is stepping in to take over. And, um, so we'll, we'll let everybody know once, I mean, this just happened. So the family is, is they they've all gotten together and they're figuring out what they're going to do. But, um, I hope next week, we will have something wonderful to tell you, um, but just everybody send prayers for them because um, it's my understanding that the young doctors that have been working for the for the John Wayne um, Cancer Institute are very upset about the decision. So, um, but just say prayers. It's they're wonderful people. They appreciate everything that people have done in their father's name. So um, it just what a, a shock. Um, the, he you know, started that. Yeah, and the double stinger is, I mean, they've been using that name to fundraise for years and years. So who know? I mean, all the all the whatever political correctness motivations they might have aside, that's that's just not the kind of thing you do after you've been writing somebody's yeah. name for money, fundraisers, and so forth. And I mean, you know, it's something that they've been bouncing around for a long time, and it's it's, it's kind of the fact that they would would notify the family that way as well put them on their heels like that it's the whole thing is you know upsetting but once again hopefully we will have good news for you on that shortly and of course you as our listeners will be the first ones to know right we'll be first ones in new york um beth you know you, <laughs> i know you've spoken to a lot of people uh did they take the name off the front door john wayne yes at the hospital st john's hospital in um the uh malibu they have removed everything. Oh, I'm sorry, Santa Monica. So, so sorry, everybody. Um, they have taken it off. It's off the website. I mean, they told the family it's coming down, and it was off their website. Um, if you would do searches, sometimes will that, that page no longer exist. But, of course, I mean, if you search John Wayne Cancer Institute, it still directs you to St. John's website. So they kept the algorithms right. in, intact. Right. You can you've you've got the search that takes you to the hospital, but John Wayne's name is gone. I mean, it's I, that's hideous. That really is hideous. Anyway, we're tr we're trying to help them as best we can. 
And um, and, and like I say, I am so very happy that the foundation is taking over because then people, they will continue his legacy for um, to work for cancer research. And um, and so our clients, when, when you do need to contact us, because if it remains um, the Con- John Wayne Cancer Institute in your will or trust as it is now, well, it'll go to that awful hospital. Okay. And I'm going to say we, it we do have awful we're running hospital. out of time. Next week, listen in. We're going to try to get Father Paul back from the Middle East, and you know, have a show with him. But stay safe. You know, as uh, Buddy Joe Piscopo said, we're not going down. We'll be back here next week, same time and places. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, everybody. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.